Registration is now open on What's Your Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazel Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. This episode was sponsored by Fair Anita, a shopping website challenging norms within the fashion industry and partnering with 8,000 women in nine countries around the world to create fair trade handmade products from female artisan partners that are paid two to three times minimum wage. Fairanita.com. And by our patrons, Tam Zane Weir, Jessica Smith, Rachel Kay, Janelise Cannon, Jamie Lang, Jill Harrigan, Maria Sanchez, Heather McKinnon, Valerie Jacobson, Chantelle Oliver, Caitlin McTaggart, Juniper, Tracy Steeb, Eugene Lewis, Eric and Carolyn Shumway, Bo Yeager, Taylor Anzalone, Danielle Powry, Bryony Lines, and Eden Engberg. Thank you so much for being our sponsors. We could not do it without you. Hi, Olivia. Hi, Katie. Simple question to start out. What matters most in life? (laughs) Oh, all right. (laughs) Just casual conversation. Yeah. Like, uh, in your everyday life, what matters most? Hmm. Um, what matters most? Well, my children, my husband, my family. Ah. Yeah, the, the, well, the Maslow hierarchy of needs, right? My core needs are met. Okay. I'm not going to run out of food, and I'm not going to not have somewhere to sleep, and... So do you think, (sighs) do those core needs matter more than family? Hmm. I I disagree with the question. (laughs) Oh, why? Well, because I think there's a difference between what matters more and what is possible. Huh. Maybe those big existential kindness learning those things matter more, but they are not possible unless these other conditions exist first. Ah, interesting. So then, taking care of other people is what matters the most, so that we can all together become higher beings. Ah! There you go. I like that. (laughs) It makes everything we're going to talk about even more interesting. Ooh, you're <laughs> welcome. I would say love matters more mm-hmm. than survival, personally, because I would just, I'd rather die than live without <laughs> love and meaning and connection mm. and things like that. Mm. So, but all of this is so, so interesting in the context of the woman that I want to tell you about today, because this is a story of slavery. Mm. And it has a happy ending. A shockingly happy <gasps> Thank ending. Goodness. <laughs> and it's about Katie Taylor, who was born enslaved on the plantation of President James Madison. Mm. And her story is a roller coaster ride of competing plot lines, but also life priorities. And the thing that I keep returning to is that there is not a single story of slavery, you know? Hmm. These are whole people in a messy world. That's so weird. History is always straightforward and 
people slot right in to the pre-existing yeah. narratives that we have. I mean, people are always just living out the predictable plot line. Yeah, of the century. <laughs> right. <laughs> in lived experience, then as now, every day we're kind of doing this juggling act. What matters most? Kindness, hmm. survival, safety, uh, love, hmm. family, a meaningful existence, like. How many of these competing priorities are possible to achieve in any given time period mm. and in any given life? Mm. My favorite quote and life motto on my wall from E.B. White, I arise in the morning torn between a desire to improve the world and a desire to enjoy the world. <laughs> this makes it difficult to plan the day. Yep. What matters most today? I'm Katie Nelson. I'm Olivia Mickle. And this is What's Her Name? Fascinating women you've never heard of. Okay, so my name is Hillary Hicks, and I'm the senior research historian here at James Madison's Montpelier. That is Hillary Hicks. She is the director of museum programs at Montpelier Plantation. We are speaking to her on a hot, humid... <sighs> deathly summer day on Montpelier Plantation in Orange, Virginia. Purely an ornamental garden in Madison's day. They have some great programs there. They've actually reconstructed the slave quarters. Wow. And they launched the Naming Project, which is a project to identify and tell the stories of all the people that were enslaved on the plantation. Mm, cool. It is because of her work that we know the story of Katie Taylor. Catherine Taylor, I think, is a particularly interesting person among the people who were enslaved here at Montpelier. Well, go down, we think she was born in the 1820s. So little Katie was born into slavery on a plantation. And not just any plantation, but the plantation of a mega famous pair, James and Dolly Madison. <laughs> the power couple. Yes. Hmm. Big family. So the Madisons were a big family as in a big deal. Mm -hmm. But Katie was born into an actual big family, a big like extended family of these enslaved hmm. people. Suki was Katie's mother. Hmm. And she's got aunties. She's got five siblings. So this is a whole big family that lives on the plantation altogether. Suki was Dolly's body servant or like her personal maid. Mm. And there's Sarah Stewart, who is possibly Katie's grandma or auntie. And she seems to be like the housekeeper. One thing that is interesting is we do have some correspondence between Dolly's niece and Sarah Stewart. And she wrote to Sarah Stewart and asked for Katie to bake her a loaf of nice bread or some French rolls, and she would pay her for it. So that indicates that Katie had some cooking skills, so she may have been one of the people who cooked. We don't have a real good sense of the schedule of daily life, but certainly as a domestic, if she was cooking, she'd be up pretty early because the Madisons did like to have hot breads at breakfast. And the Madison's finances are not good. Yeah, as, as people who own a plantation, people who are involved in agriculture, you're always dependent on the weather conditions, right. pests, 
any number of things. And James at one point said that uh, he had only made two good crops during the time of his retirement. So they, they weren't turning that much income from Montpelier's plantation. Madison was a retired president in an era when presidents didn't have pensions. Right. So yeah. really the plantation was their main source of income. Uh, James was dealing with it by selling. He didn't really want to sell people. Mm. So he was selling land, which meant that more of the enslaved community was being concentrated on smaller plots Parcels. of land. Mm. So here he is selling land to make ends meet bailing out his stepson, bailing out his brother-in-law. So by the time he died, they weren't in a great financial mm. position. When Katie was 16, James Madison died. Paul Jennings, his loyal valet, was at his side when he died in 1836. Mm -hmm. And he had for decades kind of been like the patriarch of the enslaved population, kind of mm. like, like the butler. Mm -hmm. About age 20, Katie married... Rafe Taylor, another domestic servant, enslaved domestic servant. <laughs> sometimes the Taylors were here at Montpelier. Sometimes the Taylors were up in Washington, D.C., where Dolly had a house on Lafayette Square. That's the square. It's <laughs> like the neighborhood of the White House. And much like George Washington before her, she's nervous about bringing her slaves with her into Washington, D.C., because if you bring <laughs> enslaved people into Washington, D.C., then after 12 months, they're automatically free. She's mm -hmm. like, oh, what are we going to do about this? Dolly Madison had a nephew who was a lawyer, and so she asked him for some advice. And it's kind of chilling when you read the letter, because basically it's advice on how do I keep Catherine enslaved. How do I, yeah. The nephew says, well, basically... All you have to say is that you were only part-time resident. And so there seems to have been sort of a continual reshuffling among which people were serving Dolly here, which went up uh, to Washington with her. So you have the rotating. Yep. You'll stay for 10 months and then we'll... Uh-huh. <sighs> and almost worse than the rotation is making sure that she keeps Katie in the dark about the whole thing. Right. Basically, some, somebody may put it in her head. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them, like Dolly Madison, just believed, oh, they would never leave yeah. me. They love me. And I'm, yeah. I'm one of the good guys. That's, the, so, I, that's one of the things that surprises me most every time I study this era of American history, and especially the Civil War, is the staggering number of white slaveholders who truly believed mm -hmm. that their slaves would fight to protect them Ah, uh-huh. You know, here comes the marauding hordes to free the slaves, but mine will surely stand with me and fight. And they are just yeah. flabbergasted mm -hmm. when that doesn't happen. Yeah, I think it's the power of cultural conditioning, you know, their yeah, whole they lives. Just, they truly had never thought about it. Absolutely. And Dolly Madison is right in there with the rest of them. Yeah. Meanwhile, Katie has two children, a son and a daughter. Before the bottom falls out for Dolly Madison and she cannot keep her financial disaster situation together anymore, and a sheriff rolls up at Montpelier Plantation to seize all the slaves. And in that moment, Rafe 
is at the plantation while Katie and the children are in Washington, D.C., and they're panicked that Rafe is about to be sold into the Deep South. Hmm. Sarah Stewart is here at Montpelier at that point, and she gets someone to write a letter for her to Dolly. And she explains the situation that the sheriff has come. He said that a number of people are going to be sold. And Sarah Stewart mentions in particular what is to be done with Katie, because Katie is in one place with her children while Ralph is in the other place. And everyone is very concerned that potentially uh, families are going to be broken up. Dolly saves 50 of her slaves from being sold to the Deep South. Dolly ends up transferring ownership to her son, John Payne Todd. John Payne Todd also has a, a plantation here in Orange County. And that seems to have been a strategy to keep the enslaved people from being uh, seized. And Katie, Rafe, and their family are among these 50 who get saved. The rest, all the other enslaved people and the plantation are sold up in 1845. Katie's brother, Benjamin, was sold. And she was pregnant at the time and very soon thereafter gave birth to a baby boy and named him Benjamin. Oh, It's heartbreaking and also kind of like shockingly bold because yeah. when this baby is born, surely Dolly would say, oh, how sweet, what's his name? Mm. Benjamin, after uh. my brother that you sold. Ugh. Paul Jennings, lifelong loyal domestic servant, <laughs> the, the butler, he was extra valuable, and she sold him. <sighs> but over the next three years, Jennings achieved his freedom because there was an active network of abolitionists in Washington, D.C. who would buy slaves mm. and then employ them as servants and let them earn their own freedom. So they're mm. just working off the cost of their purchase. Mm. So Jennings did that. He gets himself free, and he starts to stir the pot in Washington, D.C. Meanwhile, the brother Benjamin, he's extremely unhappy in his new situation. And he actually wrote to Dolly Madison saying, this is so terrible. Will you please buy me back? And she didn't. She couldn't. She has no money. These are her assets. And it it gets worse for her, too, because from about 1846 to 1848, she's constantly trying to get loans. And she lists as collateral Rafe and Katie and their family and their Mm. value. That's her collateral that she's constantly listing in these documents to try to get more money. Oh, it's just so bizarre. And she's Mm. living at Lafayette Square right in front of the White House in Washington, D.C. All of them are. And so is Paul Jennings, who's now free, (laughs) stirring the pot in Washington, D.C. Yeah, so she's taking loans and, oh, I'm so poor, I'm out of money, living in Lafayette Square. Like, you know, sell your Uh house, move to a slightly less prestigious location. Right, but you're the former First Lady Dolly Madison. Mm -hmm. That would mar the reputation of your president husband. Of America. Yeah. I mean, and you wouldn't want to let on that your president husband 
actually just messed everything up. (laughs) So, like, it actually kind of makes me think of Hamilton and how Eliza's job is to keep Hamilton's story alive. Dolly Madison, she's like, okay, I'm trying to do this and this and this and this. And Hmm. again, all these priorities, daily priorities that she's shuffling and trying to navigate which thing matters most. Hmm. The plot thickens massively on April 18th, 1848. Silently under cover of darkness, 77 slaves made their way to the docks and boarded the ship, the Pearl. And at midnight, it silently set sail. down the Potomac to the Chesapeake. The goal being sail north to New Jersey and to freedom. Ah, this is that. Yes, the largest escape in American history. Hmm. (laughs) Amazing. pause for just a second to thank our sponsor, Fair Anita. Fair Anita offers fair trade products ethically sourced from 8,000 plus women in nine countries across the world. Fair Anita's bags, jewelry, gifts, scarves, clothes, and more are all made in ethical working conditions. Almost all their products are made from recycled materials, carbon footprint offset, handmade, locally sourced, and beautiful. I am right now wearing this amazing hand-stamped bracelet which says, we create ourselves as we go. I love that. Which is my motto for the year. And check this out, Olivia. Here's an unboxing in front of you. I got (laughs) these earrings, and they all have Um, a story to tell. Wait a minute. Yes, I see what you're thinking. I have a question. Uh (laughs) You don't have your ears pierced, right? That's right. But look, these earrings are irresistible. (laughs) I've been meaning to get my ears pierced for years, and I'm just going to do it. Well, there's an endorsement. And almost all of their products are under $20. Use the code HERNAME, all one word and all caps, and you'll get 10% off any order. Cute. Ethical. Affordable. Farinita.com. Nobody saw it coming. (laughs) Nobody. Except the 77 enslaved people who were all part of it. One of the organizers is Paul Jennings, so obviously Mm. everybody in Dolly Madison's household, all of her slaves, they Mm. know about it very well. He personally (laughs) recruited people like, this is so amazing because it's just this silent network among slaves saying, Mm. if you want to leave, be there at midnight on April 15th. That's it. Like, Get yourself there and we will sail to freedom together. That's... That's slaveholders' worst nightmare. I mean, that was the thing they were most worried about, at least in this part of the U.S. Right. They can just leave. They can just disappear. They can just leave. And imagining, like, the dynamic among their family. 
they all know it's happening. Paul Jennings yeah. has talked to them all about it. And and in the months leading up to it, they're all deciding, am I going to stay? Am hmm. I going to go? And I, oh, I just wish I could be there to hear these conversations. Hmm. And you have to know if you stay, that Dolly Madison will know that you knew. Mm-hmm. But you're putting yourself in danger staying, too. Yes. And that's exactly what happened. Mm. Katie and her family stayed. Suki, her mother, stayed. Sarah Stewart, her grandmother or auntie, stayed. Mm. Ellen, her sister, left. Fugitives of the Pearl, John Painter, 1916. The Pearl was cast free from her moorings shortly after midnight Saturday, and silently, with no sign of life aboard, save running lights fore and aft, crept out to midstream and made a course towards the lower Potomac. The condition that obtained on Sunday morning after the discovery of the absence of so many slaves from their usual duties may be accurately described as approaching a panic. Had the evidences of a dreadful plague become suddenly manifest, the community would not have experienced a greater sense of horror or for the moment been more thoroughly paralyzed. Even so, it would seem that they might have had an excellent chance to escape, but for the adverse winds and tides which set against them towards the close of Sunday. They were approaching the open waters of the bay, and the little vessel was already pitching and tossing, as from the lashing of the gale. The captain decided that it was the part of prudence to remain within the more quiet waters of the Potomac for the night, and to make the open sea by light of day. Under these circumstances, they put into Cornfield Harbor, and here, in the quiet hours before midnight, the pursuing masters found them. It is difficult to realize the consternation felt by the fugitives when the noise of trampling feet and the voices of angry men broke upon their ears. They seemed to realize all at once that they were lost, and many gave themselves up to shrieks and tears. The bitter gall and wormwood of failure was the sad and gloomy portion of these seventy and seven souls. Children weeping and wailing clung to the skirts of their elders. The women with shrieks, groans, and tearful lamentations deplored their sad fate, while the men, securely chained wrist and wrist together, stood with heads dropped forward too dazed and wretched for aught but to turn their stony gaze within upon the wild anguish of their aching hearts. Numerous arrests were made, and in due course, the march to the jail was begun with the accompanying crowd hurling taunts and jeers at every step. While they were proceeding thus, an onlooker said, Aren't you ashamed to run away and make all this trouble for everybody? No, sir, we are not. And if we had to go through it again, we would do the same thing. That's the moment when Katie finds out her sister <laughs> didn't escape. And it's right there in town. She could have gone down to see the ship 
unloaded to see the crowd screaming at them and throwing things at them. And there was mob violence in Washington, D.C. for three days. Three (laughs) days of complete unrest and anger, rage. And collectively, all of the owners of the 77 fugitives decided together that they had to punish these people who attempted to escape. Hmm. And so... All together, they would sell them en masse to brutal slave traders who would then take them down to the New Orleans slave market and sell them into the deep south. Dolly could go one better, even. Not only was she going to sell Ellen, she sold Suki as well. And that's all we know, but it sure tells a story. Yeah. She knew that Suki knew. She decided that her personal servant for decades was now unworthy of trust and should be sold. Thanks to the work of Hillary Hicks, we know the fate of Suki and Ellen. So the friends and family of these fugitives, hearing they're going to be sold to the Deep South, scramble in a panic, trying to purchase their own family members, trying Mm. to buy them before they end up in the Deep South. Suki was purchased by somebody local. And luckily, Ellen was also purchased by a a northern abolitionist, like from Boston or something Mm. like that. So both Suki and Ellen get to stay in Washington, D.C. and earn their freedom in this, like, amazing twist of fate. Mm. God knows you got to lay down, lay down in some cold old watery grave. You got to lay down. So, left in the household of Dolly Madison is Katie and her family and her grandma Sarah. Hmm. So she's the one who stayed. I don't know why she didn't go. Yeah. Somebody has to stay with grandma or... Exactly. And it could also be because she was pregnant with her fifth child, who was born right after the incident. A baby girl. Guess what she named her? (gasps) Ellen. Ellen. I just want to be there for that moment when Dolly goes, oh, how beautiful. What's her name? Ellen. Hmm. So Dolly Madison dies in 1849, and Sarah Stewart, Ralph, and Katie Taylor, and the children are still living uh, in Dolly's house. And her household went to her son. John Payne Todd inherits the house, but he is here and there. He is traveling a lot. And so, in a sense, the Taylors and Sarah Stewart are maintaining a house for nobody living there. He was also was in a desperate financial situation, <laughs> and he he sold the house on Lafayette Square. What you said, Dolly Madison should have done, yeah. you know. And he moved into much humbler quarters. Rafe, Katie, and the kids went with him. Then hmm. the description of Todd's household and his Rafe, Katie, and the kids are listed as being loyal to the very end. So then John Payne Todd dies in 1851, so just uh, just a few years after Dolly. 
and in his will he freed all the people he had enslaved and and for most of them he also listed by name that they should get two hundred dollars the family has been freed Hmm. and i'm sure they're like gearing up they've got big plans not only are we free we're gonna have this huge chunk of money what are we gonna do with it we're gonna go meet up with suki and ellen maybe we can buy benjamin free you know all of these grand plans and then the lawyer breaks the news i know what todd said in his will but actually he died so deeply in debt Uh. that we are gonna have to sell everything he owned in order to pay (gasps) off his debts (gasps) And they're like, wait, what do you mean everything he owns? I know. (laughs) No, 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 no. The enslaved were in kind of the strange position of being both the beneficiaries of the estate, but also the assets of the Mm. estate. Mm. Ah. How many times in life do they have these hopes that are dashed? How many times in life? Oh. Somehow or another, Catherine becomes aware of this law. We don't Finally, know exactly. somebody said, hey, you were legally freed 12 months after you got here, which at this point was years and years ago. So Catherine and Ralph and their children sue for their freedom. Wow. And they win. Oh! That's the best part I of love the story. Time has made a change. The jury says they're free. Oh, thank goodness. All right, my shoulders were super tight. <laughs> now I can... <laughs> you have... You've been stressing me out. I know! Oh. <laughs> wow. And in 1853, they were granted their freedom certificate, <sighs> which still exists. Hillary Hicks found it. Wow. If you like, I can read to you what her freedom papers said. So it gives the one description that we have of Catherine's appearance. Describes her as a dark mulatto woman, short and well-made, about 32 years of age, five feet four and three quarter inches high, round oval face, forehead high with good features, having two small scars on the back of the right hand, occasioned by her hand being or having been broke. Having that verbal description of her appearance in her freedom papers, that would help her if someone challenged her status. And she had to prove. Yeah, because of course she couldn't have a photo ID. Time has made a change. Time has made a change. Time has made a change since I've been born. So that's 1853 when the whole family gains their freedom. Mm. And they will live on for 30 more years Mm. as neighbors with Ellen and Suki and Benjamin. And her other brother, also freed mm. and living in Washington, D.C. All of them. Oh, good. And Hillary Hicks also found Katie's will. So she writes her will on February the 21st, 1889, and she leaves her estate to, quote, my beloved daughters, 
Sarah Elizabeth Taylor and Ellen Ann Taylor. And she requests, quote, that my daughter shall care for and provide for my husband, Ralph P. Taylor, as I know it will be their pleasure to do. <laughs> so as far as they are able to, out of the estate hereby bequeathed them, if for any cause he should hereafter become dependent and require aid and comfort. Aww. We actually know the address where they lived in Washington, mm. D.C. All of them, a kind of large, extended family, happily ever after, for wow. 30 years. Aww. Now, looking back at the whole big picture of this story and thinking about it in terms of what matters most, what are our priorities on any given day, hmm. the way forward is never obvious. The end is never clear before us. The thing that's universal, I think, is that we are all in pursuit of those same human values. The things that we listed at the beginning mm. of the episode. There is freedom. That matters. But also love, mm. family, safety, shelter. And if we're really lucky, maybe a shelter that's even comfortable. A meaningful existence, huh. human connection, all of those things matter. And looking at this whole cast of characters in this story, with those values, I don't know if we use it as like the measure of a, a life. Did Dolly Madison have those things? I mean, did wealth and privilege give her those things? Not mm. really. <laughs> Did Todd have those things? Sure doesn't look like it mm. at all. Mm. But Katie Taylor and her family, through it all, they managed to stick together. They clearly care about each other. And somehow they made it through intact when all the wealth and privilege in the world couldn't do it for other people. Mm. So, as it turned out, uh, Ralph died first, Catherine died uh, a few months later. So he dies in January of 1892, and she dies in late September or early October. The bonded couple yes. that doesn't stay Aww. apart very long. Yeah. So I guess my takeaway from this story is that even though there are massive forces at play in our lives and there's so many things beyond our control. If you focus on the people around you and cultivate love and connection, hmm. maybe that is the answer. Maybe love is the answer. Yeah. <laughs> that is what matters most. Oh, Lordy, blow, blow, while I'm going to the nation, man, why you can't go, well, the wild geese flying all over, oh, Sergeant, it's going to be cold. Well, I ain't never coming in this butter. 
Man down here no more Well, come here somebody Oh, Lordy, man, help this road Well, it's getting cold weather Freezing weather, you know If you want to learn more about Katie Taylor, her family, and everyone enslaved at Montpelier Plantation, head to our website, whatshernamepodcast.com, where we've assembled all kinds of resources for you. Special thanks to Hillary Hicks at Montpelier Plantation in Orange, Virginia. This episode was produced by Kate Stewart and recorded on site by Caleb Slama, with music provided by the Library of Congress, The Ten Names, I Think I Can Help You, and Emmett Fenn. The account of the Pearl incident was recorded by James Henderson. Our interns are Katie Boucher and Livia Foley. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we post all kinds of additional content each week. We're so grateful for all of our sponsors. You can become a sponsor for as little as a buck a month to help make more episodes happen. Thank you for donating. Thanks for listening.